Good morning. morning. Merry Christmas. Uh, If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah 62. You'll find pew Bibles there in front of you. I'm going to be referencing some of uh, Isaiah 62 that was not read for us. You might want to have that handy. Uh, And then thank you, Brandon, for reading uh, for us. That was wonderful. Uh, Last week, Father Ben preached about gospel reversals that take place in our world when God acts to redeem. This morning, our lectionary text from Isaiah continues this theme of divine reversals. Here in Isaiah 62, the center of gravity for this chapter is the reversal that God will bring about for the city of Jerusalem, for Zion, for the people of Israel, recorded there in verse 4. Which by the end of the chapter, if if you continue to read, spills over to the entire world. The nations are called to Jerusalem to participate in this reversal. But look with me at verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. During the conquest of Israel and Judah by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, many were killed either by the sword or by starvation. And many more were ripped from their families, like Daniel a young man who was taken off to a foreign land to serve foreign kings and their gods. Israel and the temple, the city of God and the temple of God, were the key emblems of Israelite identity and their covenant relationship with God, and these were utterly destroyed. Not only were they struggling with the pain of loss, loss of family, loss of identity, loss of home, they also felt acutely the distance between themselves and God. Where was God in all this? Why has he forsaken us? Psalm 22 gives voice to that. Why would he allow the land of promise that should be flowing with milk and honey to become a barren and desolate place where no one and nothing could survive or live, much less flourish? And while Christmastide is certainly a season of great joy, it can also be a season of great pain or loss or confusion or desperation. During this season, some of us may feel forsaken, unloved, desolate, or empty. God may seem distant, his love cold, and his goodness hidden. This sense of God's distance, of being forsaken, of being unloved by him, is not necessarily the result of sin, though it certainly can be. That was the case for Israel as a nation, but maybe not all Israelites. Mother Teresa struggled for decades with a deep and abiding sense of being forsaken and unloved by God. And we didn't know this until she passed away and her letters became um, published. But she struggled with this sense that God had deeply forsaken her. And for decades, she bore her heart in confession to God. And her priest confessor encouraged her to write her confessions as a way of processing the darkness that she felt. And in one confession, she writes, In the darkness, Lord my God, who am I that you should forsake me? The child of your love, and now as the most hated one, the one you have thrown away as unwanted, unloved. 
call. I cling. I want. And there is no one to answer. No one on whom I can cling. The darkness is so dark, and I am alone, unwanted, forsaken. The loneliness of the heart that wants love is unbearable. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love, the word, it brings nothing. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. In spite of all, this darkness and emptiness is not as painful as the longing for God. The contradiction I fear will unbalance me. What are you doing, my God, to one so small? Mother Teresa's confession illustrates the felt darkness that can be experienced in the Christian life when one, for whatever reason, whether that's because of our own sin or not, when one senses a profound distance between themselves and God of being forsaken and unloved, desolate and empty. Isaiah 62 addresses folks who, like Mother Teresa and Israel, experience this sense of forsakenness and desolation, and it offers a picture of coming salvation in which the forsaken will experience a profound gospel reversal. How then does Isaiah 62 present this picture of gospel reversal? That's what we're going to look at this morning. It presents it in three movements. First, it begins with the voice of the anointed one, the Messiah. This is Jesus speaking in the Old Testament to us in prophecy. Listen to him in verse 1. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Jesus is relentless in pursuing your salvation. He is relentless in pursuing your reversal. When you feel forsaken or desolate because you sense that God is distant, you need to know, if you can in that moment remember, you need to know that there is one who will not be quiet. He will not stop, nor will he rest until your forsakenness is reversed and you receive and feel God's delight in you and his favor for you until your name is changed. My delight is in you. Until your desolation is reversed and you are filled to overflowing with the life and flourishing that comes only from God. His relentlessness drove him to identify with you and me in the most profound way by taking on human flesh. As we heard in our gospel lesson, the word, the creator, became flesh and dwelt among us. And eventually on that dark and glorious Friday, he took on our forsakenness and our desolation our sin and our separation from God, and he swallowed them up in love and life. And he gave to us in their place God's delight and favor, his light and life. 
And even now when the sense of forsakenness crowds out the sense of God's love in our hearts and souls, know this, that Jesus, as your great high priest, is relentless in his intercessions for you. He will not be quiet. He will not be quiet before the throne of God. There is no one on earth or in heaven who can shut him up. He continually intercedes for you. He is constantly interceding for you as one who knows what it is and what it feels like to be forsaken. For he is the one who cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus' relentless intercession for you is informed by his complete identification with you in your forsakenness, in your humanity. Malcolm Geit captures this so well in his sonnet on the ninth station of the cross when Jesus falls for the third time. And he writes this. He weeps with you and with you he will stay when all your staying power has run out. You can't go on, you go on anyway. He stumbles just beside you when the doubt that always haunts you cuts you down at last and takes away the hope that drove you on. This is the third fall and it hurts the worst. This long descent through darkness to depression from which there seems no rising and no will to rise or breathe or bear your own heartbeat. Twice you survived. This third will surely kill, and you could almost wish for that defeat, except that in the cold hell where you freeze, you find your God beside you on his knees. Jesus does not offer you this Christmas some abstract condolence, but rather costly solidarity. Whatever circumstances you are facing or whatever emotions you are experiencing this Christmas tide, Jesus is there beside you on his very human knees, relentlessly interceding for you before the Father. He is relentless. He will not stop until you fully receive God's delight and favor. You need to know that. And if you're not going through a difficult time like that, tell yourself this truth over and over again. So that when you do, you'll have it. Second, Isaiah 62 presents two assurances that this reversal, which Jesus is relentlessly seeking for you, will be brought to completion. We encounter the first assurance in verses 6 and 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a place, of, makes it a praise in the earth. The first assurance that Jesus, the anointed one, gives is that he has set folks within his community, among his people, to be watchmen who resemble Jesus' relentlessness in being present, right? Incarnation and in intercession. These watchmen will not be silent. Like Jesus, they will not rest, and remarkably, they will not allow God to rest. Do you love that image? They will not allow God, the Father, to rest until he brings about the fullness of his salvation, until the redemption of all things is accomplished 
in your life, and throughout all creation. The watchmen envisioned here provide assurance that God will act because they will not rest in reminding God of his promises, of his oaths to redeem and restore. This is kind of the voice of this in the Psalms. God, where are you? What are you doing? Do what you've promised to do. God sets these watchmen within the church. And who are these watchmen? These watchmen are your priests. Father Ben, David, Shane, and myself have been called and equipped by Jesus to be his sheepdogs, to be his tools in his belt, which he uses to relentlessly pursue your salvation, your reversal. Christ Church, Jesus has given you watchmen who are committed to coming alongside of you in the midst of your circumstances in which you feel forsaken and unloved, desolate and empty, and who are committed to relentlessly intercede for you in prayer to God. I hope you know that. Now, the priests here at Christ Church do not do this alone. We have a remarkable group of folks on our prayer team who are committed intercessors. They are committed watchmen. They relentlessly intercede for you, reminding God of his promises to bring reversal in your life and throughout creation. So whatever circumstances you may, so whatever the circumstances in your life may indicate to you, and no matter the lies the evil one may tell you, you are not alone. Jesus is always interceding for you whether you ask him or not. And your priests here do pray for you whether you ask them or not. Though it is helpful if we know what's going on and how we can intercede for you, <laughs> of course. You are not a bother to us. And likewise, the prayer team would love to intercede for you. But of course, they need to know. So don't hesitate. Let us know how we can intercede for you. How we can keep God awake today. How we can keep him awake this Christmas tide. So that he will fulfill his promises that he has made to us. The second assurance Jesus gives is found in verses 8 and 9. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who drink, gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. The creator of all things has sworn. He's made an oath to bring redemption and reversal. For Israel, this is all they had, the oath of God. But we not only have his abiding oath, we also have his divine guarantee now. Jesus has taken on human flesh to bear our forsakenness and desolation in his death on the cross. God accepted this by raising him from the dead to new life. And Jesus, as the risen and ascended king, pours out his spirit on us as the guarantee that we will fully participate in this new life, in this great reversal of which he is the firstborn. Resurrection is the greatest reversal of all. This spirit, which we have through baptism, repentance, and faith, unites us to God. We are no longer forsaken, but sought after and redeemed. Verse 9 presents the signs of this reversal in food and drink. Don't miss it. 
God declares that you will know when I have fulfilled my oath, and here's how you'll know. You will eat bread and drink wine to my praise around my table in my sanctuary. Christ Church, you are not alone. You are not forsaken. This table, this table that we have here, this meal that we eat around it, is a guarantee. It is a sign that God has fulfilled his oath to us in Jesus. This table and the meal we share around it preach a more true, good, and beautiful word than anything in all creation. This meal that we share to the praise of God declares that the darkness you may experience, which seems all-encompassing in the moment, will not last. You see, this meal is but a foretaste. It's an advanced sign of things to come, of that great feast which we will share in God's presence, not forsaken, but loved and sought after, redeemed, holy, that we will share in God's presence when his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. This meal proclaims and assures us of the reversal that Jesus has accomplished for us and the full realization of it when Jesus returns to completely establishes establish God's heavenly kingdom on earth. That's a reason to have joy even in the midst of darkness this Christmas. Finally, look at Isaiah 62. It ends its portrait of gospel reversal with a call to action. Look at verses 10 and 11. Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. This is the nations. This is addressed to Israel. Build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones. This time, not for the Messiah coming, like it does in Isaiah 40, right, that we hear in the Gospels, but for the nations to flood into Israel to receive salvation. Cleared of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. One, note that salvation here is a person. It's Jesus. Behold him. His reward is with him. His recompense is before him. Notice the progression in Isaiah 62. We have been fed to do work. We have been fed to do work. And what is that work? It is the work of preparation, of building, and of proclamation. Practically, this is the work of creating culture, of living out a distinctive Christian culture, the culture of the kingdom of God. You see, the revelation of God in Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas and that nourishes us around this table necessarily entails, right? it follows that the, there is a formation of a people who bear witness to God's name by living a new and totally, a new and total way of life defined by Jesus. This new and total way of life resists the culture around us that inculcates forsakenness and desolation in those who live according to its way of life, atomizing and separating them from God and from each other. By living out this culture of the kingdom, we declare in word and deed to the dominant culture we live within that there is a way to truly and fully love and be loved, to know and be known by the one who made us and by each other. You're not alone. We proclaim, in this culture that we are to live out, we proclaim 
that forsakenness and desolation do not have the final word in this world and in our lives. And so we embody a culture defined by Jesus who relentlessly pursues the reversal of our neighbors and our co-workers from forsaken to sought for, to sought after and redeemed just as he has pursued and still pursues us and that reversal for us. This culture that we are to embody and build here in Winston-Salem is a baptism culture. It is a Eucharistic culture. At this table, the baptized are nourished by the bread of heaven, Jesus Christ, who is the life of the world, who overcomes our forsakenness, who overcomes our desolation, and gives us life. And we are nourished here by the life of the world so that we might go and be the hands and feet of Jesus, relentlessly seeking out those who live as if forsaken. That's important, as if forsaken, so that they may return to God and receive this life-giving feast that is for the life of the world. And we're going to talk a lot more this year about that concept of for the life of the world. I hope you'll come along for the journey, and I hope you'll be encouraged if you're going through a dark season now or in the future this Christmas, that Jesus has sought after you. Your name has been changed. Your identity has been changed from forsaken to delighted, from desolate to fruitful, married, verdant, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.